This podcast is brought to you by Voltero. In need of a break from the crypto roller coaster? Protect your earnings with physical gold. Find out more at Voltero.com, the world's first crypto commodities exchange. Backed by tech stars and used by thousands of investors around the globe. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This podcast is brought to you by Voltero. In need of a break from the crypto roller coaster? Protect your earnings with physical gold. Find out more at Voltero.com, the world's first crypto commodities exchange. Backed by tech stars and used by thousands of investors around the globe. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Jonah Sachs, the author of Unsafe Thinking. So, Jonah, thanks for coming, and I appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me about uh, the book Unsafe Thinking. What's the uh, premise of the book? And then we'll get into the story behind it. Yeah, the idea of the book is just about facing the challenge of change that all of us in business or creative pursuits face every day. And, you know, our world is changing so quickly. We know that we need to change and adapt with it. But doing so is really hard. It's just not how humans were programmed uh, to behave. We love patterns. We love predictability. We love efficiency. So how do we make more room for creativity and for challenging past ways of thinking? Because we know if we stick with, you know, our old ways of thinking, we're going to be obsolete. So how do we really joyfully and creatively embrace the future rather than kind of hide from it? And that's what I was looking at and um, mm. found, talked about 100 entrepreneurs and innovators and read all the science I could and I think found some really important principles that are a little understood but really helpful for anyone trying to break through. All right, as you say, old ways of thinking, um, can you give a few examples of old ways that maybe don't work as well and new ways that you find are working better? Yeah, well, you know, there's so much that we fail to understand about, for instance, you know, human psychology. So there's something called the backlash effect, where if you confront somebody who um, doesn't share your beliefs with evidence that their beliefs are wrong, they're actually going to more strongly entrench themselves in their original belief. Their mind comes up with all kinds of reasons to disbelieve you. And yet we spend millions of dollars on persuasion campaigns to get people who don't agree with us uh, to think differently. Well, now there's a whole set of new science about how to completely turn that on, on its head. Instead of going out and trying to persuade people that they're wrong, you know, talking to them about the values that you share together and how do you do that well. Um, there's, you know, we obviously see it in the, um, you know, transportation industry who ignored uh, peer-to-peer ride sharing for so long or in Blockbuster Video who ignored uh, the coming of the Internet and streaming. All these companies that sort of see a business model that they're sitting on as you know, endless and as worth investing in over and over again, when, when we look to the trends of the future, we see that change is coming. Um, we need to be investing uh, at least 20, if not more, percent of our time and effort and money into uh, advancing what's new rather than uh, reinvesting in our old business model. So, you know, the book is obviously full of tons of different ideas of, you know, what's no longer working and what is possible to work. But really, it's about how do we think about new mindsets um, and challenge ourselves. So if we're really 
thinking of ourselves as, as an expert in one field, how do we step out and get into new fields where learning happens really quickly? If we're really good at analysis, how do we learn to trust our intuition a little bit more? Or if we're really invested in our intuition, how do we get more analytical? Uh, how do we bring a scientific mindset to our work and do more experimentation? All of that stuff gets us out of that old model of thinking and leadership, which is about you know a predictable and constant path and something much more nimble and reactive, uh, reactive to change. So why do you think people, um, it's not easy for them to transition to new thinking? Are we taught not to think this way by institutions? Are we brought up this way? Um, is it just human nature? What do you think the reasoning is? Yeah, so um, there's, there's a kind of a number of different factors here. A lot of it does come down to evolutionary programming, to, to human nature. Um, when we face a threat, when something unexpected happens uh, because the world is changing, what happens is we naturally feel a certain amount of anxiety. And when we feel anxiety, the way that we are programmed to respond to anxiety is by um, is what's called cortical arousal. That means we get adrenaline and cortisol in our brains and our systems. And what that does is it tells us to act as quickly as possible to allay that anxiety. And that works on the African savanna, for instance, when a lion jumps out at us and we have to just run. We don't sit and think about new ideas and, and new pathways forward. So for our ancient ancestors, acting in predictable ways is a really good way to respond to threats in our environment. But when our environment is in a state of flux, what happens is we'll just choose something that has you know, been done before that we think will make sense and will get us out of this anxious feeling. And that leads to just more threat awareness because we are not changing. What I found is that um, a lot of the science shows that we need to see anxiety not as something to be avoided, but as fuel for creativity. And the best innovators will see um, that nothing that they've ever done that is creative ever happens without that feeling of anxiety. So teaching ourselves to see anxiety as fuel for creativity and teaching our teams how to do that is a big part of what the book is about. So, yeah, it's just natural. You know, creativity makes us in many ways less efficient, uh, less likely to march to a, a, an obvious goal. It's why teachers say that teaching creativity is the most important thing they can do in the classroom, but often report that their least favorite students are the most creative ones because they disrupt and they break things. And um, learning how to break things without breaking our businesses is really, you know, extremely important in today's marketplace. So you have a lot of examples in the book, which is great, but what about... Um people that feel like they can't make this transition without help, what do you recommend that they do and, you know, there are resources out there for people that want to embrace this thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's all about creating a little bit more time for experimentation. Um, you know, in the book, I talk about sort of six areas where we can open up and, and change our thinking. Um, but really, when I talk to companies and individuals who are trying to do this, I um, ask them to kind of just pick one thing to try and begin um, you know, walking down that road and seeing if their creativity opens up. So, for instance, um, when we face a challenge or a threat, right, when we find that there's something in our business that we know needs to change or something in our career that we know needs to change, um, there's something called the open mode of creativity. And what studies show is that the more time we can spend in that open mode, which is not the execution mode, but is the, the thinking and um, coming up with new ideas, the more creative we'll be. There's something called blind variation selective retention, which tells us that creative geniuses don't have better ideas. They just have more ideas. Mm. So I tell people, whatever your usual habits are about looking at possibilities, give yourself 25% more possibilities in that moment when you're coming up with ways to go. Because the first possibilities you'll come up with are always the obvious ones. If you give yourself just that one more hour to look at possibilities, you're going to then see new opportunities opening up. So give yourself, you know, even if it's 20 minutes or 45 minutes, 
this is an opportunity to kind of broaden your palette of creativity. Uh, there's something also about digital distractions in our environment now that keep us from being creative. So what's happening is that all, most human creativity happens when our minds are in low focus mode. We'll look at a problem, we'll think about that problem, but it's not until we take that hot shower or go for that long walk um, that things really open up. What's happening in our environment, though, is that we're using all of those low arousal moments, those kind of open moments, we're filling them with our Twitter feeds and Facebook posts, and we're not giving ourselves that downtime in our mind. So I ask people to try to give yourself 15 minutes of downtime to be more creative during the day, and that often shifts things enormously. Or one final idea is a lot of times in our businesses, we are trying to create um, more unsafe thinking, more experimental thinking, without realizing that our people in our companies don't feel safe enough to get unsafe, essentially. And one of the most important things that we can do for them is to find that psychological safety that allows them to do a lot more disagreeing, a lot more fighting about ideas, a lot more questioning their bosses and breaking rules without feeling they're going to get fired. I talked to Steve Kerr, who's the coach of the Golden State Warriors, and asked him how he got his team to play so creatively and with so much risk and you know break so many records. And he told me this fascinating story, which was that when he got to the NBA, he felt like he didn't belong there. He was not good enough, even though he was one of the best three-point shooters in the game. And he would always pass up the big shot because he felt like a fraud. And that meant, you know, giving the ball to Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen, which, you know, made a lot of sense. They were great players. They would usually hit the shot. Hmm. It wasn't until Jordan had the flu in game six of the finals and Kerr hit the final win the winning shot that he realized he belonged there and that he did had wasted so much energy not feeling safe enough to take risks. And so when he got to the team, he decided he was going to change the locker room culture. He was going to take all the pressure off. And he was going to show people that they belong there. He was going to create a sense of family and community and start measuring things other than who scored the most points or who had the most assists and completely change the uh, psychology of the team so that when they were out on, in the arena on the court, they could take these big risks. And because they felt safe and protected as members of the team, that they had a place there. And so I talk a lot in the book about how to realign incentives in a company so that people feel safe enough to take chances, to stop rewarding success and start rewarding intelligent risk. You know, to get people who break the rules to not be punished, but, you know, intelligent rule breakers to be celebrated. So, yep. you know, lots of things we can try uh, in small ways that don't feel so risky and get a taste of what more creative performance feels like and then go from there into you know, a much better future. Well, one thing you mentioned that I think would be helpful is you said when you're um, figuring out solutions to a problem, spend just a little bit more time to find a couple extra solutions. And I guess more often than not, you'll... Uh, you'll start finding some creative ones that you didn't think about before, maybe get better solutions. Yes. I mean, the idea is not to always embrace the riskiest path, uh, that you're overloading yourself with risk. It's called a risk portfolio. You know, you can only take on so much risk at any given time. The idea is not to always take the unexpected and wacky and crazy path. But the idea is that when you know that the road that you're on is eventually going to lead to failure um, and you know you need to make a change, it's in those moments where you realize that the greater risk is staying with the status quo, that it's important to develop new opportunities and new possibilities. And I just profiled, you know, just uh, dozens of innovators in the book who went out and said, you know, we could keep going, but we're going to go off the cliff if we do. I, I, I tell the story of Helena Folks, who was a VP at CVS, um, who, you know, helped redefine the corporate purpose of the company. And she, you know, came up with something pretty bland and straightforward, which was that CVS was going to deliver health and wellness to communities. You know, that didn't seem like much, 
But as soon as she did, she realized that they had this huge problem, which was that they were selling $2 billion a year worth of, of tobacco in the company. And, you know, that was a, a big problem because it didn't align with their core purpose. A lot of the employees were feeling uncomfortable. Customers were feeling uncomfortable with it. And, you know, all the obvious forward um, would have led to just staying with that status quo. Nobody takes $2 billion of sales off the book. But she stayed in that open mode of creativity long enough to ask a really intelligent and important question, which was, what if we can make more money by not selling cigarettes uh, than we make now? And that seemed like almost impossible. But as soon as she asked that question, it unlocked the creativity of her team and those around her. And she was able to find ways to both increase better brand value and also create better partnerships under the new Obamacare rules. Um, so that when she convinced her bosses to get tobacco out of the store, she was also able to show they were going to make far more money if they did it. And they actually made $11 billion in the first year that they stopped selling tobacco because she asked a different question that no one was really willing to ask. There was nothing really that amazing about the strategy. It was just that no one was willing to ask those questions because everyone was in such a rush to keep going down the same path. And she generated enormous value in her company by stepping back and opening up a little bit more to you know, counterintuitive and non-conventional way forward. So what kind of practices uh, have you taken on or how have you changed what you're doing since the, uh, you know, the writing of the book and what's working for you? Yeah, I mean, one, one thing that I found is that um, you know, being an explorer is way better than being an expert. So, uh, you know, we tend to, and, and this happened to me in my own company, you know, I started when I was 24, I was doing advertising for social change. I became an expert, so to speak, on storytelling on the internet. And what I found was that my growth was suddenly stopping. I, I had a way of doing things that um, I started enforcing on all, all my employees. I started enforcing it on my clients. I, I was saying, this is how you do it, and this is how we'll always do it. And I got more and more invested in a single way of thinking. And um, that became a threat. I could feel the threat to the business. And yet, as many of us you know, experience, our success is based on our expertise. And so we keep investing further and further in our expertise. I found that what keeps us actually more creative and keeps us growing is to spend at least a little time uh, every week doing things that we're terrible at. And that's where growth and learning really happens. Um, so not only have I sort of dismantled my identity as an expert and um, you know, stopped selling myself as such and spent a lot more time in my areas of ignorance and my areas of expertise, I've actually literally done things that kind of humiliate me in order to break up some of those um, ego attachments to a certain way of seeing the world and a certain way of doing things. I, I started taking singing lessons and doing some singing performances, even though I'm quite terrible at it, uh, because there's a lot of science that I read that shows that humility in leaders um, really increases their creative output and also increases their leadership potential. And I found that that you know, really has worked for me to move back into that realm of explorer rather than you know, being an expert. Um, so you know, that's one. Uh, I also learned in my research something that I really didn't understand as a, as a younger leader, which was that when we surround ourselves by people who make us feel good and people who share our values and our experiences and our cultural preferences, we get less creative. Um, I tell the story of a, a preacher in Boston who was you know, experiencing terrible murder rates in his neighborhood. And it wasn't when he was working with the at-risk youth that he was able to accomplish anything. It was only when he worked with the murderers themselves, the gang members, that he found the paths forward. And so I found that really fascinating, that our greatest enemies, um, rather than our you know, obvious allies, are the ones who make us more creative. So I've been spending a lot more time with people who disagree with me and don't like my ideas, 
um, and battling that out rather than just surrounding myself with the kind of echo chamber of people who agree with what I have to say. So those have been two things that have been, you know, really generative and interesting to me. And I guess, I guess finally, you know, I have taken that um, advice that I give in the book where um, I used to sort of fall in love with a single idea pretty quickly and then try to spend a lot of time executing it. But I say in the book, um, I quote John Cleese from Monty Python, who said, you know, he would actually cannibalize as much of his execution time as he could for more idea generation because he knew that, you know, anybody can execute. And execution is, you know, kind of a dime a dozen, but it's coming up with that truly original idea um, that makes all the difference. And so uh, I definitely have taken away time from making things perfect um, to generate bigger and better ideas. And that's really worked for me quite well. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, have you gotten any pushback from family, friends, you know, loved ones or anything? People saying, why are you doing this? And, you know, what's wrong with you? You're going crazy. Or has it been pretty easy? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that the, the title of the book, Unsafe Thinking, you know, does bring to mind crazy behavior. And I, I definitely tell the stories of people who have done, you know, really wild things. I tell the story of the mayor of Bogota who got his start um, in, in politics and got his, his um, you know, face in front of everybody by mooning a crowd who was about to erupt into a riot and, uh, you know, got fired from his job, but eventually became famous enough to become the mayor of Bogota based on this stunt and was actually incredibly thoughtful in why he did the crazy stunts that he did, including uh, replacing all the traffic cops with mimes as a way of getting people to follow the law. And so I definitely talk about, you know, people who do wild and wacky things, but really um, the book is about examining the way that we think and the ways that we don't, the parts of our brains that we don't really invest in and have left kind of fallow and make us feel uncomfortable and diving into, you know, engaging more with those things. And, you know, that doesn't, you know, create that much dissonance in the people around us. Uh, so unsafe thinking is not really just about going off the rails. It's about pushing ourselves into, out of our comfort zones into doing things that are harder for us. And I think that, you know, my friends and family have found that more flexible approach to life and a uh, more humble approach uh, to be maybe more refreshing than, than threatening. Um, you know, I, I definitely get the question, like, you know, am I the one to write this book? Am I, am I the most unsafe person that I know? And I'm probably not the most unsafe person I know. I think in some ways I've written the book for myself, first and foremost, as taking someone who has a little bit of that natural conservatism and fear of change and really trying to explore how does a normal person, uh, like an iconoclastic creative person, uh, take more risk. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. Um, is it going to put you into new industries or like, you know, now you're more of an explorer mode? which is great. And I'm sure you're running into a lot of new and diverse things. Like you said, you're taking singing lessons, which is good. Where do you want to take it in your own life? Where do you hope it'll go? You know, I, I found that it, it has brought me into a lot of new conversations that are challenging for me um, in that when you tell people, well, I'm going to help unlock your creativity, you know, the, the level of the diversity of challenges people are facing are enormous. Um, and you know, the, the field that you wind up in um, are totally unpredictable. And so, um, you know, the book is being published in uh, Russia, China, Romania, uh, Vietnam, Taiwan, um, you know, here in the UK. And all of those contexts are completely different. Those cultural contexts are completely different. The problems people are facing are completely different. And so um, I'm realizing that as I go to give talks and give consulting to people who are, you know, enjoying these ideas and wanting to learn from them, that I have to protect myself from the idea of I'm going to come and bring answers and that I can, you know, solve problems as an outsider because 
you know, I just got all this expertise and really go in and change my approach to being about how do I help you think about your own potential and empowering people to really unlock what's within them rather than, you know, provide answers for how to read orient a company, how to reorient an industry. And so I've really found that I'm learning so much quicker because I'm in all these conversations I never thought I'd be in, and then I'm not there to provide any answers, but there to challenge some of just the basic status quo. And I've found that what's really interesting is how easy and quickly people want to embrace this. And by just giving them some prompts and getting them to examine some things they haven't examined before, um, you know, so much genius can pour forth. And so I've been really pleased um, with this new role, whereas, you know, when you're working marketing, you're just coming up with, with uh, solutions for people. I've kind of stopped doing that, and now I'm coming up with, you know, just uh, challenges for people and seeing them respond to it with their own genius has been great. Um, any feedback you're getting from uh, readers of the book on what, you know, changes that they've made and what, how it's working for them? Yeah, I mean, I think that what I'm, what I'm hearing is that the, this challenge of creating more psychological safety in companies um, is not where people have been working. You know, people have been working on kind of incentivizing uh, more creativity, just pushing people harder. Um, they hadn't really looked at the level of culture and sort of who gets rewarded, how do they get rewarded, and how do our people feel really, um, you know, able to take those risks. Uh, that working at that level because it was, it's been so ignored for so long, we think more about the product and about the process rather than the culture. Um, but that has unlocked, you know, just lots of opportunities and people have found their own ways because it's just been a, an, an open doorway. And so uh, the feedback has been, yeah, these prompts have really helped us. This has been, you know, this has been kind of re changed the conversation and brought forth a lot of voices that were silenced before um, or people were, were kind of, being creative behind the scenes and under the surface because they didn't want to stick their necks up uh, and talk about how much how many rules they had been breaking. Uh, once these things come forward, there's just a lot of latent potential within so many companies because no one's really having the conversation in a structured way about how do we get more creative. And so that, that feedback's been good. You know, of course, not everything works. And you know, when you write a book about how to fundamentally change yourself and your world, um, you know, some people will find certain parts extremely challenging and. Some of it, even though the science supports it, is just not as actionable as I had hoped. But um, I think a lot of parts really are. And so uh, it's been satisfying so far on that. Okay. Well, very good. So what's the best way for people to get a hold of your book? Is it Amazon? Is it, is it on Kindle, Audible? Yeah, uh, Kindle, Audible, iBooks. Um, you can get the hard copy, uh, all those places. So wherever books are sold, you, know, you should be able to find it. And then any um, any supplements that you've uh, created that go with the book or any um exercises or anything like that or is it right now it's just the book i mean the, the book itself is full of exercises um okay. and you know every chapter ends with you know uh 10 things that you can do right now or, or you know some, some amount of actionable steps uh if you go to my website you can kind of get a little bit more of that information a little bit more direction um but yeah definitely recommend uh, checking out the book because it has it breaks everything down from you know the stories and science right now to what you can do right now okay well, very good with well, Jonah. Thanks for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. I'm going to check yeah. it out. And thank you. Great talking to you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. 